0: You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the house and our events on our website. Good evening, everyone. And welcome to tonight's event with Warsan Shire. My name is Ose Lappegolan, and I work with the artistic program here at the House of Literature. And shortly after I started working here, back in 2016, we happened across this powerful poetry book called Teaching My Mother How to Give Birth, which explores family, belonging, war and migration, violence and the female body, all in a lyrical visual language. It's a small chapbook by Varsan Shire, And we were determined to find a Norwegian publishing house to publish her poetry here and to get her to Norway. There was only this minor problem, and that was that around this time, Beyonce's album Lemonade dropped, which features Shire's poetry, and so she was suddenly in demand everywhere. But I'm really, really happy that Samlage stepped up and made sure that her poetry could reach a wider audience here in Norway, beautifully translated by Kamara lundestad and Kristina Leganger-Iversen. And I'm even happier that now, finally, after a long pandemic, we can welcome Barsan Shira to our stage. She has since also published another book, her first first full-length poetry collection, to great critical acclaim. It's called Bless the Daughter Daughter Raised by a Voice in Her Head, and it's also been translated into Norwegian by the same two brilliant translators. And in this uh, collection, which I'm sure we will hear more about, we can recognize the same unique lyrical voice, although it's also different in some ways, in poetry dealing with themes such as girlhood, mothers and daughters, black identity, migration, family, and faith. Shira was born to Somali parents in Kenya and raised in Great Britain, a background that she draws on in her own poetry. And she was named Young Poet Laureate of London in 2014. And to speak with Shira on stage is Swedish poet Athena Faroksad, who herself have dealt with themes such as motherhood, migration, and marginalization in poetry collections such as White Blights, and her recent Åstansår, The Year of the Donkey. So please give them both a warm welcome.
1: Good evening, everyone. I know that you're super excited to be here. I am. What a what a joy to be sitting next to you, Orson, here tonight. And Osil did a lovely introduction. So I think we will just Get into plunge that. into the matter. Yeah. Yes.
2: Hello everyone. I wish I could see you guys' faces, but I know there's so many cute people in <laughs> here. There
1: is. Yeah, I, I looked. <laughs> <laughs> so we're here to talk about your writing, your poetry, and especially your second volume of poetry, "Blessed the Daughter Raised by a Voice in Her Head. And it was just published recently and um, translated to Norwegian and also Swedish. Uh, so this book, we were actually mentioning this before, to me, it has an intricate structure. Mm. Uh, It's divided into four parts. And these parts, they are called, I will quote it now, they're called, what doesn't kill you? Violence, hmm? maybe. Mm -hmm. This is not a love song. Love, music. Uh, Are you there, God? Religion. And testament. Heritage. Um, And death. So for me, I, I perceive these four parts like almost like, chapters, mm-hmm. uh, chapters of a novel almost. Um, but more than anything, as like rooms in a house mm. or parts of a body, you know, that constitute one full, one full house, one full body. Um, could you say something about this way of these titles and, yeah. and what they say about the book and, and this way of structuring the poems?
2: Well, as I was saying <laughs> to you earlier, I would love to take credit for it, but um, in the editing process. So I worked with two editors. One, um, my main editor, who I've worked with since I was fifteen, is the reason why I'm even um, have a career in writing at all. He found yeah. me literally in the ghetto of London. So he <laughs> gave, uh, there was a workshop going on there, and he's this uh, very handsome. <coughs> um, black guy with an afro and he, he was running the workshop and he was like, um, you know, who in here wants to be a poet? And I was like, yeah, I would like to. So. so he, he swapped, he, he asked me for my email um, and he just said to me, just send me work. And so mm. since then, he has mentored me and workshopped me and introduced me to who actually ended up publishing Flipped Hi- um, the publishing house Flip Tile Hi- ended up publishing, teaching my mother. So mm. he was responsible for so much. So he also edited this book, and mm. um, some of the titles were for the, for the chapters were possible titles for poems. Mm. Um, and I kind of just gave him all the work and I was like, I need help separating this. Mm. And so he did his magic and sent it back to me and I was like, I love that, thank <laughs> you. So I can't, I can't take any credit for it at all. And you know, it turned out I brilliant. do love compartmentalizing, mm. but I found it really hard with this big, like this, obviously, it was my first full collection. Mm. I, I, did, I knew I wanted it in sections, but it was his genius mind that came up with that. Mm. So he he, he kind of showed me, I gave him all the poems, and he showed me the, the, like the story inside of it.
1: Mm. Yeah. Let's talk about the voice. So, again, the book is called Bless the Daughter Raised by a Voice in Her Head. Yeah. And I've I've been thinking a lot about what it means to be raised by a voice in your head. Uh, you know, to me, like, on one hand, it means being on your own, mm-hmm. not being able to rely on, um, you know, adults while growing up, raising yeah. yourself, the lack of care, you know, but also the freedom in that. Mm. On the other hand, uh, it also means to me, like, what, it is it, what is it to have a voice in your head as a child, as a daughter, to me it is to already be socialized somehow, Mm. you know? To already, as a child, carrying the voice inside one's head that constitutes society, you know? Mm -hmm. Somehow, you know? Like, regarding yourself with the gaze of someone else Mm -hmm. or or speaking to yourself in Mm -hmm. somebody else's voice, you know? Might be, like, the voice of, you know, the order or power or patriarchy or, you know, the colonial Mm -hmm. structure or the voice of... You know, a friend. Yeah. But like, it's like regarding yourself from outside, yeah. somehow. Uh, mm. So this, th- th- to me, this, it's like a very intricate image, you know, having, having a voice in one's head as a child already. Yeah. So wh- what is it to you, this, this image of being raised by an interior voice? I think um,
2: it's all of those things. It works on so many different levels. Mm-hmm. And it's both... Um, as we were touching on mm. positive and negative. Yeah. For me, it started off really young, where I um, really struggled with um, what later on was diagnosed as OCD. Mm. So, as a child, showing these really um, uh, eccentric traits.
3: Mm.
2: My parents were really worried about me. I used to pull out my hair a lot and hide it. And so my mom just took me to the hairdressers and shaved it bold. She didn't really know what to do with the the things that I was doing and the strange ways I was acting. But at the same time, it was um, a place of like, my imagination saved me. I Mm. I was a very lonely, self-sufficient child. Mm. Um, And then when I did make friends, I, I was lucky enough to make friends who accepted me fully as that. So I always kind of mm. lived in my head most of the time. So this idea of um, voices in your head, I think for me, started off as first as like the voice of God. Mm. So growing up in a Somali household and, 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 and growing up in a Muslim household, mm. I, I started becoming really interested with this idea of death really early on. Mm. And so these ideas of jinns and angels mm. and... Um, mm. All the Somali mythologies and Qaris, maris and Degder, and all of this, like really um, interesting but disturbing dark stories, hmm. I was fascinated from a young age. So to be introduced to this idea that there's another realm, the unseen, walking amongst us from a very young age, I think did something to my brain where it hmm. was good and bad. It allowed me to um, imagine in such a large way, but then I was always anxious and terrified of demonic possession, and mm. I was always wondering what would happen to you in the grave. So anyway, to get back to your question <laughs> about the many voices, mm. I think that mixed with... I was raised by the TV. I w- mm. I'm the eldest in my, in my family, so mm. all the voices in the TV were the ones that I unfortunately, unfortunately, got my ideas of what beauty was or how you're supposed to act in love or how people argue. It's things I'm still unlearning now because... Um, <laughs> Hollywood teaches you in a way how to be human if nobody else teaches you and then you're kind of a fucked up human being because of the way that you're acting. So the voices in my head were my grandmother's voice I would hear on cassette tapes that were sent over from Somalia because uh, I grew up in London. I was born 88 and shortly after there the war broke out. So there was a multitude of voices constantly, um, you know, poems and songs. and, and telephone calls back home, um, constantly taking you to another place. You're, you're, you're reminded that you're not only from here, wherever you are. And then there's Oprah on the TV. And she mm. taught me everything c- that I knew about empathy and also having these hard, difficult conversations. Until now, my mum co- const- constantly tells me that I still think I'm Oprah. But I will sit my family down and be like, let's talk about it. But since I started watching Ianla, I find myself... <laughs> More on that side. If you guys haven't seen Iyana Fix My Life. She's like the protege of Oprah, but more like me. I grew up in northwest London, so I don't have time for a lot of foolishness. So I'll be like, we need to sort this out. Anywho, the voices.
1: (laughs) Mm. Um... But I feel this, what you're mentioning now, yeah. these different kind of voices, the voices from, you know, opera's voice, the TV voices, <laughs> yeah. and the voices of the djinn, How and, that? The, and the voices, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thank you, mm. and, the, and the grandmother's voice, you know, yeah. from the homeland, that this this must also, I mean, this mixture of voices mm. must also somehow be very important for... You know, in becoming a poet, you know, dealing, structuring these voices in one's head while while growing up,
2: and then also to touch on the um, the parentification of children, the adultification, Mm. the lack of uh, when you lose your childhood early on. For whether it's something somebody does to you or the amount of responsibility that you're given from an early age, mm. you do have to raise yourself, and so then you do call back to those voices. And so, what is it that gives you um, those moral that moral compass? And so, for me, it was everything I learned about Islam and everything Oprah taught me, and everything my mm. grandmother, my mother, and the people in my family taught me. But um, and yeah, mm. yeah.
1: Speaking about Opera. <laughs> There's there's a there's a lot of um, film, movies and oh, yeah. music in this book and in your work in general, uh, from Britney Spear- Spears mm-hmm. to Dawson's Creek. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's mentioned in the book, yeah. quoted or uh, referred to. Uh, what is I mean, wh- what would you say is the function of you know popular culture in your poetry? Because it's something that to me. Uh, you know poetry is still regarded as this high form of culture which is you know doesn't belong to the masses I mean mm, yeah. we could we could disagree upon that and then you sort of deliberately mm-hmm. mix this up with references to popular culture all the time. <coughs> well, but going back to this
2: um, you know I'm a part of a whole generation that was raised b- mm. by the TV the, I mean in a way th- this is all I knew, that's how I, those were the references I made. I'm still um, very much um, obsessed with um, music and film, probably not Britney Spears now, but (laughs) I find it fascinating to look back at the things I was interested in, how Mm. more whitewashed they were Mm. the younger I was and how that had an effect on the way that I developed and how I saw myself. And slowly as that changed, I think, um, um, for example, referencing Angela Bassett's um, yeah. Burning It All Down in the film Waiting to Exhale. I have memories, the way I've almost broken down years of my life are based on what I watched and mm. what I saw and, and sense. And, and those are the way that my, mem- my memory... is actually pretty bad, but I can be transported very, very quickly mm. just um, remembering a, a book I read when I was younger or uh, a scene from a film or something like that. Mm. I, w- I was really, 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 um, like, raised by the TV. And mm. so everything in there, <laughs> I took <laughs> it out. It was mm. my mother and my yeah. father, mm. and it was um, both terrible and great. But mm. to s- say that how it fed my, like, creative mind or my writing life, I have never truly experienced boredom ever because if i can close my eyes i just have lots of movies going on in there and right. i really like that mm. but obviously it would have been better to be raised by parents who were present <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely
1: <laughs> mm. your first book teaching my mother how to give birth yeah it was published 11 years ago yeah mm. uh, and in in many ways i would say it resembles your new book and not mm. You know. Uh the topics are the same. Uh but this one to me is is wilder. Oh really? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um less respectable maybe. I'm not the first that the first one is super respectable either. Mm. But less, you know, more eager to pick a fight, giving less of a fuck you mm. know, more all over the place. You know, there's something um in sense of Style that feels free, mm. I would say. Yeah. In your new work, do you, is is that does that resonate with you?
2: Yeah. I, well, um, I guess I am more unhinged now than I was back then. Mm. But I am on medication now, so mm. I'm actually healthier <laughs> yeah. now than I mm. was when I wrote the first book. Mm. I think I'm also in the, t- in, the <laughs> in, the, in the in the in the the space between the two books, I completely, like, I live in another country, mm. I gave birth twice, I have two boys, I got married, um, like, th- those are a lot of big things that usually should change you, hopefully for the better, and um, um, also I had time to 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 reflect, I had time to understand who my mother was, I had time to figure out so much, I had time to go to therapy, mm. um, I had time to um, really... Like, um, when I was writing, teaching my mother, I was so young, I knew that I had things that I wanted to say, but I also didn't know why I was saying them. I just had these stories. Mm -hmm. And so taking the time to figure out, okay, so um, what I write has, um, I have a responsibility, basically. And so my responsibility, I thought, was just to be honest. And so I wanted to expand and extend from teaching my mother. Um, but I would just say I'm just more myself, and probably you know, not living in your mother's house gives you more freedom to be more honest, mm. and um, mm. and I do give less of a fuck mm. because I because I'm I'm realizing that I spent uh, many years of my life very worried about what people thought, and now that I don't care, I guess that's the <laughs> that's probably what you're seeing. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Speaking of the portrait of the mother, mm. if you compare the first and the second book, would you say that since you yourself have become a mother, that the portrait of the mother is more forgiving? Yes, somehow? of course huh? yeah,
2: because <laughs> you get it on the other mm. side, although though there's e- more, m- m- more grief on the other side, because mm. also you're um, having to accept that you know what? they weren't going to be able to do better than they were able to do. And that's mm. it. But then when you, when, I, w- when I had my children and I felt that all-encompassing love that everybody talks about that's turned into a cliche, it changed me. But then it came with this um, sadness that I knew that my mother actually didn't get to feel that feeling that I'm feeling.
3: Mm.
2: And so it's not her fault. She would not wasn't able to love me the way that I love my children but she also had a completely different life so instead of worrying about what you didn't get and what kind of love you wished or what kind of mother you wish your mother was Mm -hmm. rather just deal with the reality of where it is and she's actually a really beautiful kind Mm -hmm. loving really gorgeous woman Mm -hmm. um and and you know, I actually just feel sorry for her that she wasn't able to feel that feeling mm. because it would have changed her. And I got to choose when I would have children. My mother didn't have that choice. Mm. She got married very, very young, basically like a child bride. And uh, I know that she, um, you know, she didn't have choices that I did. So uh, who am I to judge? Mm. She's, she's, she's the reason why I'm able to live the free life that I live right now. And she supports me. And she was just with me a couple of weeks ago in L.A. Mm. And she still smells very
1: good. <laughs> the mother is not the only other character mm. in, in your poetry, even though it's maybe one of the main or the, the main. But one of the things that I love so much about your poetry is um, how populated it is, mm. you know, uh, with... Sisters and uncles and aunts and jinns and uh, uh, other family members and ghosts and and, and so mm-hmm. on. Um, to me, I think the reason why I like it so much is mm-hmm. that to me this is the most like immigrant-like feature of your poetry, <laughs> <somehow>. <laughs> um, more than the actual narratives or the use of other or other you know sayings in in another language and so on. It, it's it's really sort of a, a mirroring mm. of what life is to me, you know, in, in exile or in diaspora. Um, I think I love it so much because it comes across as a very non-Western life, lifestyle, mm. you know, in the West, like, um, you know, a life filled with all these people, you yeah. know, who are constantly uh, there <laughs> on, <laughs> on an everyday level of, of life. Yeah. Um, so, mm. Why do you think that your poetry consists of so many characters?
2: You know, it's simply just a reflection of the house that I grew up in.
1: Mm.
2: And at one, at sometimes there would be 20 people living in a two-bedroom house. Mm. Um, and yeah, when you think of that, you probably think, like m- m- some people might think, oh, how sad, the poverty of it all. Mm. But really... <laughs> If you could imagine exactly new year's yes with that many people dancing yes, um, mm. I remember one birthday you know everybody <laughs> even though there was 20 people in the house, everybody forgot it was my birthday <laughs> and I was um, mm. seven years old, right. Mm and I remember telling one of my aunts, like, uh, also all of them have PTSD that they don't know about, Mm. because they just literally survived some of the most horrifying things you could imagine. Mm. But they're here all dancing. So anyway, I was like, oh, it's my birthday. And they were like, okay, so we have this thing called niko in the Somali uh, 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 culture, which is basically twerking. (laughs) like your life depends on it basically. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody gave me um, their necklaces that they had, they put it on Mm. me like I was uh, like a wedding singer. Mm. Uh, And then um, they ordered a pizza and put little matchsticks in it for my birthday. (laughs) And we had like, um, that was the best rave I've ever been to in my Mm. life. And I was seven years old. And Mm. those kind of memories wouldn't exist if it wasn't a house full of refugees. That's how I grew up. Mm. And I remember, you know, when the inspectors would come We'd have to pretend that half these people didn't live here, and mm. people would have to scatter, and there was a lot of like um, you know uh, things that could breed inferiority complex in you if you don't have the right people around you. But mm. for me, it was just fun times outside of the the crazy fights that would break out or where the police would come or it just mm. you know I, the the poem that I have of a woman stabbing her um, man in the groin, I saw that with my own eyes, mm. you know. And I think it's kind of hilarious, because he was a terrible guy. Sorry. <laughs> so Lorena Bobbitt in real life. I mean, mm. who gets to have those experiences? <laughs> Anywho? The book is really a, a, just a, a, a complete, just a reflection of the house that I grew up in. It's not exaggerated. nothing is added to it. I could go on and on. There mm. were some people who didn't want their stories shared, so I didn't. The mm. people I write about are the, only, are the ones that sit down with me and say, so let me tell you what happened. Right. And it is cathartic. And mm. they don't feel a threat because there's nothing I could really do with their stories to hold it over their heads. And I, I, do, I am very, um, very, very meticulous about um, protecting people. I am mm. not going to write a poem about you. Just bec- you know, that's bullshit. I wou- mm. I'm not going to do that. So um, yeah, the book is just the house that I grew mm. up in.
1: But is it cathartic to you, or to de- to them, or to your relationship to each other?
2: I think definitely the relationship always changes. I I mm. have uh, it ends up you just having such a deeper bond, and then I and and and, and they feel. Um, I don't know, just uh, like I uh, understood. I remember w- yeah. having conversations with a particular aunt about her experiences with FGM that nobody wants to talk about. But, and she was so, I'm not going to share what she said, but she was so honest. And talked about it, and it was like a horror film. And I realised that no woman in my family would ever speak that openly about it. Mm. And because it's also a coping mechanism that you don't want to think about it like it's a negative thing when every single person that you know has also got it done. And it's Mm. been done to you...
1: Female gender mutilation. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and it's
2: been done to you to also protect you. Having that kind of conversation with her, where she was really, really honest and Mm. talked to me about things that were completely taboo, and I was only like 18... Um, we just—it was like uh, that. W- those were the things that, that really taught me that there is a human being with stories behind every single person, mm. no matter how horrible they may come across, or ho- how quiet or how um, dehumanized they are. Hmm. So
1: yes, maybe now is a good time for you to read. Oh yeah, backwards <coughs> that we talked about. Which one? Backwards. Oh yeah. Oh.
2: Backwards. The poem can start with him walking backwards into a room. He takes off his jacket and sits down for the rest of his life. That's how we bring Dad back. I can make the blood run back up my nose, ants rushing into a hole, and we grow into smaller bodies. My breasts disappear, your cheeks Soften, teeth sink back into gums. I can make us loved, you know, just say the word. Give them stumps for hands if even once they touched us without consent. I can write the poem and make it disappear. Stepdad spits liquor back into glass. Mum's body rolls back up the stairs. The bone pops back into place. And maybe she keeps the baby. Maybe we're okay, kid. I'll rewrite this whole life, and this time, there will be so much love you won't be able to see beyond it. You won't be able to see beyond it. I'll rewrite this whole life, and this time, there will be so much love. Maybe we're okay, kid. Maybe she keeps the baby. Mum's body rolls back up the stairs, the bone pops back into place, stepdad spits liquor back into glass. I can write the poem and make it disappear. Give them stumps for hands, if ever they touched us without consent. I can make us loved. Just say the word. Your cheeks soften, teeth sink back into gums and we grow into smaller bodies. My breasts disappear. I can make the blood run back up my nose, ants rushing into a hole, and that's how we bring Dad back. He takes off his jacket and sits down for the rest of his life. The poem can start with him walking backwards into a room. Thank you.
1: <laughs> you know I, I love this poem so much because in its simplicity mm. it, it is like a you know creation myth or a recreation decreation mm. myth you know simple as that thank on you. a page thank you but I also uh, wanted you to read it because I want to ask you about style Yes. Um, And truth, maybe. Mm. (laughs) Uh, Because to me, poetry and writing poetry, the process of writing poetry, is very much about precision, you know? Mm. Uh, Trying to aim at precision and trying to find the words that makes the world accessible again, you know, somehow. Uh, And I would say that in your poetry, repetition is like the means of precision somehow. Yeah. but uh, this constant use and reuse of words and, and and phrases and anaphors, it's it's one of your clearest stylistic, you know, traits. Mm. Um, yes? Do you agree with that? Oh yeah. Or, yeah. Definitely. And what is I mean why why are you repeating yourself in, in your poetry so much? Wow. You know, I touched
2: upon being diagnosed with OCD. Mm. My whole life is set up around rituals that I create, I repeat. If I go cook on the stove, I have to check that the stove is off over and over and over again. Um, Before I'm eating, you know, um, you're supposed to do a a prayer to thank God for your food. And in the space of eating one meal, I will stop maybe about 50 times Mm. to repeat the prayer. And um, when I'm writing, I feel free in it, and the repetition still comes up. It's just something I I struggle with, Mm. and so um, I find comfort in repeating, so when I'm praying, I really love like using Mm tusbah, the um, prayer beads, Mm -hmm. because it's the act of repetition, I find myself like get lost in that over and over again. So the poems are like that for me, and that's That's that's
1: so accurate, your poems are like rosaries. Oh, thank you.
2: Sorry, I cry (laughs) a lot.
1: (laughs) Um. Allah I think (laughs) respectability is a very important issue in Mm -hmm. your book, Uh, I mean the fallen woman, the whore, etc. And the very first thing that you find when you open the book is a quote by a Japanese uh, poet called um, Hiromo Ito uh, that says like this, I was an ugly child, you were an ugly child, we were ugly children. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Th- that is you know bam <laughs> that is what what is stated yeah. <laughs> and, and this ugliness mm. of course has has to do with you know girlhood and female respectability, i think um and this this lack of respectability is also a very racialized thing yeah <sighs> in your poetry, you mm-hmm. know mm. uh, the fact that respectability is maybe never accessible, Mm. Um, how would you, is that something that you've worked around, Uh, you know, the respectable and the non-respectable in terms of whiteness and blackness? Hmm.
2: Well, yeah, I think first it started off for me within because I grew up in a predominantly black area in mm. in London, so there would be only like one white child in our classroom. So for a while, that it wasn't something I really thought about in those terms, But the respectability came from um, like my own community, my own culture, my own family, where it was because I, I um didn't wear a hijab and also just wore whatever kind of clothes I wanted it was automatically assumed by a lot of my friends' parents that I was, you know, a bad girl. Mm. When really I was so innocent, especially <laughs> compared to their daughters, you know? <laughs> like, I, I really, really, really was. So mm. the the hypocrisy was never lost on me, and so I think yeah. I really enjoyed straddling that fence of knowing, actually, like, you know, a bit TMI, but, you know, I remained a virgin until I got married. And I... I Thank you. Can we <laughs> clap for that? <laughs> no, I'm just joking. People are going to be like, "Don't uh, shame the whores," but I love the whores. I just wasn't a whore, you know. And I, I, I didn't, I didn't, I never judged anybody, but I felt perpetually judged. Mm. And so I liked people thinking I was something that I wasn't. And I liked, like, you liked
1: that. I liked Why that did you like my
2: that? wayward cousins with the tattoos and the blah blah? They thought we were connected, and I was like, I guess we are, but we're not really. And then. The ones who I um, felt like I had more of an affinity to, those that were so worried about going to hell. They thought that I was, like, uh, twerking my way to hell. <laughs> so it was really difficult to find some uh, a place to connect. Mm. So I just thought, let people just think wherever
1: they think of me. I of think this is the first time I hear somebody, d- you know, being happy with being disguised as unrespectable while being respectable. Because you I know. know who I am. You know,
2: mm. I know who I am. And... Um, my family, also, they know who I was, so it was being constantly being judged by the outside world t- for being something that i wasn't i felt I started to just find it freeing, and I was like it's okay because I know who I really am, um and I actually am actually more traditional, more cultural than people would uh think, mm. but you think i'm wild because I wear lipstick and <laughs> sometimes banazoo. Bon yeah i don't know if anybody <laughs> will know what that means here, so i won 't say anything so um criminalize myself anymore, but um, I just, because I was constantly judged, I empathized a lot with that judged, you know, the scarlet letter is given to you whether or not you're truly deserving of it, you know? Like, if you're seen as a whore, you might as well be a whore, because mm-hmm. like, nobody's actually going to check your hymen, you know? <laughs> uh, uh, th- sometimes they do, but that yeah, wasn't happening. Mm. Um, that wasn't going to happen. Mm. So, um, yeah, I just like the in-between, and I think the in-between also was where I found myself between cultures, between languages, um, mm. between countries, and so it was okay I, um, to be like a virgin whore, basically. <laughs>
1: Yeah. That's your next, the title of your next book. <laughs> <laughs> mm. um, I was initially I was saying that to me the four chapters of uh, the book mm. almost constitute a house, you know. Mm. Uh, it, it, but the house is also an important uh, f- you know, image, mm. I would say, uh, in your book. Um, you know, the house being blessed or blessing the house. Um, and I recently translated um, Audrey Lord's uh, poetry uh, into Swedish, and, yeah. and she has this, you know, notion of uh, belonging to the house of difference. Mm. It, you know, uh, she where she speaks about, you know, we were uh, at first we thought that we were women, but no, we were different. Then we thought that we were black, but no, we were different. Mm. Then we thought we were lesbians, but no, we were different. Mm-hmm. And, and then she says, uh, then we understood that our place was the very house of difference, mm. you know, like, you know, being, having the function, you know, of, of difference in yeah. society. Uh, but in your book, there's that element, mm-hmm. you know, of the house being othered constantly, but there's also this element of the house being connected to the eye of the poetry as, as something that makes the eye very full and rich mm. and blossoming. Mm. You have a place in, in, in uh, this poem where you say, which was actually what I was the most touched about mm. uh, when I read it, uh, where it says, uh, show us on the doll where you were touched, they mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. They said... Um, and the eye re- re- responds. I said, I didn't look like a doll. I looked more like a house. Mm. Uh, and this is this phrase keeps echoing in my head. I didn't look like a doll. I looked like a house. Mm. You know, because that's also a strategy of protection. You yeah. know, I'm not a doll. You know, I'm not this object, othered object. I'm a full house, yeah. man.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, that touches upon what we were just talking about, the respectability. And I think um, when you've had experiences when you're younger where, you know, you come away feeling. When you have adults take advantage of you as a child and you grow up, that also does something to the way that you think of yourself. Um, with regards to how much respect you think you deserve or the ownership of your body and, or how much you're comfortable with intimacy. And so it, that's been something I've always been grappling around. And then also to go back to the, what you were talking about, uh, black girls, black childhood is cut short, is not allowed to exist. Um, we are judged in a completely different way. Our bodies are seen you know, as... Um, much more mature and we're not seen to have the same innocence or allowed to just exist in the same way that other people are. And so um, mixing, when you bring all of that together, I think I did create a coping mechanism for myself where it was, you know, if the body is a house, then I can fortify this house more than I would be able Mm. to fortify a, a body the house is, you know, I think about security all the time, I th- mm. the, some of the things I think about all the time before I go to that, sometimes I'll wake up in the middle of the night and check if the doors are locked and the windows are locked. My husband thinks I'm like insane, but he knows I am insane, so that's okay. <laughs> but um, that also is me protect, me protecting the house, is me protecting my body, is me protecting everybody basically. Mm. Yeah.
1: Do you want to read that poem? Yeah. Mm.
2: Bless this house. Mother says there are locked rooms inside all women. Sometimes the men, they come with keys, and sometimes the men, they come with hammers. (laughs) A man who won't listen to words will listen to action. I said stop, I said no, and he heard nothing. Perhaps she has a plan. Perhaps she takes him back to hers. Perhaps he wakes up hours later in a bathtub full of ice, dry mouth flinching at his new, neat incision. I point to my body and say, Oh, this old thing? No, I just slipped it on. Are you going to eat that? I say to my mother, pointing to my father on the dining room table, mouth stuffed with a red apple. The bigger my body is, the more locked rooms I find, the more men queue at the door. Ahmed didn't want to push it all the way in. I still think about what he could have opened up inside of me. Ali hesitated at the door for three years, and Johnny with the blue eyes came with a bag of tools he'd used on other women. One hairpin, a bottle of bleach, a switchblade, a jar of Vaseline, and Yusuf called out God's name through the keyhole, and no one answered. Some begged, you know, some climbed up the side of my body like moss looking for a way in. Some said they were on their way and never came. Show us on the doll where you were touched, they said. I said, I didn't look like a doll, I looked more like a house, they said. Show us on the house. Like this, two fingers down the drain, Like this, a fist through the drywall. My first found a trap door in my armpit. He fell in. Hasn't been seen since. Once in a while, I feel a quickening. Something small crawling up. I might let him out. And maybe he's met the others. Males from missing cities or small towns and pleasant mothers who tricked and forced their way in. Knock, knock. Who's there? No one. At parties, I point to my body and say, oh, this old thing, this is where men come to die. Yes. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Thank you. When I hear you reading this poem now, it also reminds me of the fact that you're a funny writer. Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that there's also, I mean, that it's maybe it's not the most striking, you know, uh, feature of your work, but I think humor, and maybe it's a British thing. <laughs> but I think it's a Somali thing, to be honest. Oh ah, maybe it's a Somali <laughs> thing. Yeah. <exactly>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, they are right. the funniest
2: people in the world. Right. Yeah. Mm. I don't know if you if you guys don't know a Somali person, meet one because that <laughs> so hilarious.
1: Mm. Mm. But there is this aspect of you know very sharp lines, you know, sharp images Mm. or sharp utterances, you know, being like uh, hidden in one's face when one reads, you know, (laughs) (laughs) almost like a slap in the face, Uh, which is, um, it's harsh, but it's also fun. I like that. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. I wanted to ask you about activism. Yes. And about sort of the social aspects of writing poetry, um, as as you all, uh, I'm sure you know, uh, your your poem "Home," mm. that also appears in the book, it has been wildly quoted around the world, uh, and also within a context of um, migration, um, you know, the migration movement, or asylum movement, or, or refugee rights,
2: yeah. right? Yeah.
1: Uh, no one leaves home un- unless home is the mouth of a shark and mm-hmm. uh, no one puts their children in a boat unless the water is safer than the land mm-hmm. mm. this, is, this is somehow I feel like these two lines uh, and this poem is is, uh, is almost um, the um, a s- this a symbol of our time you know mm-hmm. uh, in, in the sense that uh, somebody could you know Hold up a banner, saying these words to to an um, an increasingly racist or fascist society where where migrants and refugees have less and less rights, you know. Uh, and then somebody holds up this this banner, saying, "No one leaves their home," uh, in a way trying to appeal to you know the humanity of white Europe.
3: Hmm.
1: Uh, And I think this is something that you do intricately, eloquently in this poem, because that's a hard thing, I mean, appealing to humanity (laughs) is hard, (laughs) you know, it's hard as a human being, but it's, it's also tricky, you know, it's aesthetically tricky somehow trying to face, face power, face violence, face fascism, face, you know, colonialism and in its face say, listen, you know, no one leaves home unless unless home is the mouth of a shark. We we come from this, mm-hmm. you know, we have stories, we have reasons, mm-hmm. we are subjected to violence. Uh, it's a hard thing to do, and I think not a lot of people would succeed, <laughs> you know, writing, writing a poem like that that is so powerful. Um, but do you think, do you think, and how do you think of your work in in social terms like that. I mean, um, your work and its function in the social struggle like this poem really still has, ongoingly has. Um, Yeah. You know, when I wrote the
2: poem, I had just, um, I wrote it in Italy, in Rome, and I visited the Somali embassy that was like um, abandoned, decrepit, but um, Somali refugees and other African refugees had um, made a makeshift home out of it basically. Mm. there was no water no no running water, no electricity no and it was very cold at the time as well and when I 'd gotten there, they said that a young Somali man had recently like the day, the, the day before j- jumped from the roof of the embassy because um it, he didn't you know couldn 't go on and um I remember going back to um, the hotel that I was staying at, and just, and I was 18. I remember, and I just felt so frustrated and angry. I was just so angry, and I felt so guilty as well. Like I didn't understand. Um, w- I felt completely powerless. So I wrote that in, uh, s- like it was a first draft. It was a free write. I wrote it. I remember in 15 minutes, and hmm. I, th- I didn't want to. Ra- I wasn't. Um, It wasn't, hey, listen, understand, we want to go home too. That wasn't the tone. Mm. The tone was, of course nobody wants to be here. Are Mm. you stupid? (laughs) Why wouldn't we want to be back home where Mm. you belong and everybody looks like you and you don't have to deal with all this crap? Mm. But then also, why are we pretending, doing all this mental gymnastics to jump over everything that's been done to make our homes fucking unlivable? Like, I just found all of it so aggravating and so, I was just so angry. And then you realize that sometimes people have never heard just, like, simple, you know, because they're not from your backgrounds. It's like, you know, empathy is something that they have to develop, but it was wild to me that, you, you know, that these words have to be repeated, and people are like, oh, my God, I've never thought about that before. Um, I just couldn't believe that there were people that were like, oh, damn, we really thought you guys were just over here struggling and being stepped on because you wanted to be near us. Like, what the hell? So, um... Also, because the weather is so (laughs) good and the
1: food is so great. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Anyway, um, so, yeah, so Mm. it came from that place of like real deep frustration. um, Of also, and I was born in Kenya. I never even got to even stepped foot in Somalia at that point so I was like romanticizing and, 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 and deeply in love and constantly thinking about this place that I couldn't go to and then you have these people telling you to go back home and it's like oh, I would love to obviously mm. so um, on one level it's great that you know it has raised awareness basically and, 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 and made some hearts softer but it's not lost on me that Whenever the the I I see it like an uptick in the 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 like those quotes being used, hmm. it's for like you know, refugees with like blue eyes. You know, hmm. when I was writing about uh, uh, black Africans, it wasn't really. It was like people didn't understand what I was talking about. But suddenly now, you know, hmm. um, it's happening in Ukraine. It's like no one leaves home unless home is the ma-. and it's like yeah, I was saying this about like. It's just frustrating. But at the same time, mm. I mean, life is frustrating, isn't it? So mm. I just need to be grateful for the good that comes out of it and just ignore the bad, because I can't control that stuff. And you know I've got a problem with control, so <laughs> I can't be sitting obsessing about that. But it is sad mm. to see that um, ultimately um, darker-skinned black people always get the, the worst of it mm. across all cultures, across... The
1: entire planet Mm. but are you do you believe in sort of the the activist power of poetry or and are you aware of it while while you write no no No. i don't write i don't think about that
2: Mm. i think once you start thinking about um i'm gonna write and i'm gonna tell a message and they're gonna listen to me like who are you like just write a poem (laughs) for yourself (laughs) to think that you could just like Mm. preach at people is very arrogant and strange that's how I feel anyway and I think it comes across Woo! a bit cheesy mm, yeah. sorry I just said it was a bit cheesy wouldn't it be a bit cheesy if I was like okay what am I gonna write about today poverty <laughs> uh, hunger let's write a poem you know you won't be hungry if you I don't know <laughs> <laughs> Oh. Mm. <sighs> But uh, ultimately, though, the political and the personal are so deeply intertwined that any poem I write will be um, seen as some, <laughs> try, some kind of activism. Mm-hmm. But remember, like, I've been listening to Oprah for a very long time, so...
1: <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of this, who, um, you, know, who you address, mm. um, you have this glossary in the end of the book. Yes which I found very interesting, uh, where you can look up some of the words that you use yeah. in the poetry. Um, and it is, you know, I, I think it's, um, it's an interesting and difficult choice to mm. pu- put a, gl- a glossary in a, in a book of poetry, you know? Mm. Uh, because somehow it's like some of the words... Uh, when I look them up in the glossary, it adds an extra meaning because some of the words I don't know. Yeah. Um, <coughs> but also, what it also brings mm. is that, you know, it makes me think, who is this book for, right? Is it some, someone who does or doesn't know uh, the Muslim or, or Somali culture or vocabulary? and, and and so on, uh, you know, who, who somebody who has to look up as stagforella or charmota, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but, mm. So, wh- tell me about the glossary and, and why it's there and what it does. <coughs> well,
2: first of all, I made a very specific choice not to italicize any of the words. Mm. So, the words are not italicized right. so that you, like, um, you know, they're just written the way that they are. It's the glossary is there not only for um, Somali words, but also for um, b- uh, more obscure English words as well. Mm. But you have to understand, like, for example, my sister's... Um, like, I have a 10-year-old sister. When she's reading this book, she's Somali, sh- how is she going to understand what I'm talking about? Like, mm. she needs to go to the glossary as well. Mm. There's this um, assumption that um, if you put a glossary in the back, it's only for white people. Mm. What? Mm. That, it's for anybody that, doesn't, that needs a little bit of translation. Mm. um so it's there if you want to find out what a word is and it's there um it's just there for um extra help yeah. but so what do you do you tell me what you th- you you do you think that <laughs> the glossary should be taken out and people no. need to do some extra hard work because I agree with that as well <laughs> but some of these words you will never find out what they mean because the internet <laughs> is not going to help you like that <laughs> yeah
1: no I, I think what you mentioned the fact that they're not idolized is very important yeah that is be- I mean, that important. is the most important yeah. choice yeah. I think yeah. you know yeah. for it to be uh, seemi- seamlessly you know yeah, integrated in all other kinds of language yeah in uh, in the poetry
2: yeah mm. yeah And there are lots of Somali people that don't know Somali, and
1: this is a way that they can learn some of it as well, Mm. yeah. Towards the end of the book, Mm. uh, you become preoccupied with, or almost obsessed with, blueness. Mm. There's a lot of blueness in this book, uh, especially in this uh, testament, the last part. Um, Why are the blessed bodies blue? What's, what's with you and
2: blue? What's with me and blue? Well, I love the color blue. The Somali flag was blue. <laughs> but I also love um, blue because... Um, well, I've always been um, just infatuated with the color blue. Obviously, the, the sky and the, the sea. Um, but then also for me, it symbolized like um, uh, a, deeper, a deeper blackness. Um, And it also, like, uh, uh, um, the sky, when it's so black, it's blue. And I also, blue would mean to me, you know, grief and sadness and Mm. the music, the blues. And then also, for me, it also symbolized death in a way as well. And, Mm. like, the, the color of lips when you've passed away. And mm-hmm. so, these poems of her blue body, um, these last few poems that you're referencing were about my friend who um, passed away from cancer, and she um, also loved the color blue, and then there was um, a painting that was done by her, by this beautiful Nigerian artist, Toyino <coughs> Dutola, um, who, um, drew my friend Yosra who passed away and she drew her in these beautiful dark blues and Mm. black hues and um, so for me it just has this all uh, all these connotations and it is my actual favorite color I love blue so much Um, so but in those poems it symbolized everything from um, I imagined like if she was in the womb and it was lit up and I imagined her deep sea and I imagined her in space and in e- every time she was blue. So, um, yeah, it, it's just, I just like it, mm. yeah.
1: Do you want to read those things?
2: <coughs> I'm gonna read um, her, blue, her Blue Body Full of Light and Bless Our Blue Bodies.
1: Yes, please do.
2: So this is for, for Yostra. Her blue body full of light. Can you believe I have cancer? Yostra asks, a mug of tea between her hands, almost laughing, hair cut close to her scalp. I imagine the cancer auditioning, inside her body, tiny translucent slivers of light weaving in and out of her abdomen and uterus, traveling up and through her throat, needle points of light, fireworks glimmering down, the body burning into itself, deep sea blue inside her body, her rib cage, an aquarium, the cancer spreading and spreading, Deep space, her throat a lava lamp, sparklers beneath breastbone, the light show a million tiny jellyfish, orchestral womb, kaleidoscopic ovaries, disco ball heart, her skin glowing and glowing, lit from within. Bless our blue bodies. I have dreamt of you Suspended in amniotic fluid, your hair fanned out and alive long again before the cancer. Undying, our movements synchronized, us tied at the navel, umbilical cord and all its length tugging at me far as it might extend. Gregory Porter climbing through, there will be no love dying here, his voice and how it soothes you from beyond the distant wall of this maybe womb, faint rhythm of a larger heart above. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Marsan, for your reading and all your thoughts. What a blessing <laughs> to meet you. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to us. <laughs>